Saintly Goodness, Providence in Real Time. In this podcast, we discuss how our three writers, Ibn Khaldun, Augustine, and Ibn Dawood, looked to saintly goodness as providence direct, in contrast to providential goodness as unintended byproduct of power clash. Saintly goodness involves people who sacrifice for a common good, doing so out of a recognition that society flourishes because of its goodness, not its power. Saintly goodness is always a minority in history, but serves as vital reminder of the ultimate reality that guides society. As discussed in the last podcast, worldly power, despite its perversities, is subject to a higher order, making it right to direct our loyalties not to power, but to God's goodness as true sovereign. We often say we'll work for goodness once we've accumulated enough wealth and power, but doing so disregards how history works and makes us complicit in the evils of power. You truly participate in the production of prosperity only if goodness is your guide. Augustine draws a clear distinction between power and true goodness. We might think we're promoting goodness by pursuing power, but doing so entangles us in evil. Rome deluded itself into thinking it was doing right by defining those it dominated as bad. Even if its power established peace in its domains, its imperial mission depended on the claim that other nations were ruled by tyrants. Power justifies itself by attributing evil to others. That's how power makes sense of war. They're evil, so we're right to use power against them. That's the way of the mortal gods, deities who incite their devotees to a foe glory. Augustine criticizes the idea. We use power as last resort for a just cause, but if God's goodness isn't the object of our devotion, we'll end up devoted to the evil that we feel we need to project onto others in order to justify our foe glory. Saintly goodness, which comprises devotion to the good of all, defies this common tendency to base our worth on the evil of others, since saintly goodness doesn't classify others as evil. It thus frees us from the soul-disordering perception that power is what justifies us. Saintly goodness reminds us that power does not represent heaven. Even if operating in the shadows of power, saintly goodness offers a vision that's more aligned with the workings of the human soul, which responds freely to goodness, but is coerced by power. Saintly goodness is thus a web of goodness, God's providence and our free response to it. Indeed, Augustine notes, the dominion of goodness is a benefit to all, even to rulers, but all the more so to those who are ruled. Since prosperity is ultimately based on goodness rather than power, goodness is the real power. Thus, in the greatest irony of history, it is saintly goodness that actually rules society, even if power appears to do so. Augustine makes the point by noting that Rome, in light of its fascination with power, never existed as a commonwealth, meaning rule with the aim of justice for all. Justice for all, he argues, does not exist under the banner of power, but only when there's true worship. Thus, even amidst the power clashes of history, we still need the example of other communities that don't live for power, 
thereby reminding us of what society is to be. Augustine calls it the city of God. This saintly assembly, which, despite its own imperfections, is ordered to goodness rather than power, represents God's direct rule over the world. It's not providential goodness, goodness as indirect byproduct of power, but saintly goodness, goodness for its own sake. The mind on its own, by observing history, can see saintly goodness at work in society. But humans, being fickle creatures, are able to participate in the goodness of the city of God only by taking on the spirit of goodness that heals the soul of its disordered enthusiasm for power. Significantly, the saintly assembly, even if oriented to a higher order, is never isolated from earthly society, including its politics. Saintly goodness is a public matter. It shares the same stage, society, with worldly power. Ibn Daud speaks of the way the saintly assembly in his day engaged worldly powers in order to advance its mission. Ibn Daud sees his rabbinical community, despite its lack of worldly power, as home to the saintly figures whose lives hold the key to history. He speaks of them engaging kings for the good of the world. It wasn't just a matter of Jews under empire negotiating their survival. By transmitting and teaching Torah, God's law, rabbinical figures mediated goodness to the world since they were oriented to the law of God, which, being based on divine reason, is what makes people righteous, rather than the logic of power intrinsic to imperial law. One might debate the details, but God's law, by its very nature, orients people to God's glory rather than the emperor's glory. Central for Ibn Daud is the endurance of Torah in the rabbinical community. Jewish history, Ibn Daud shows, is a witness to the endurance of the teaching of Torah and thus of God's sovereign providence. When kings heed the advice of rabbinical sages, their rule prospers. One example is Rabbi Samuel Halevi, 11th century scholar of Torah, famed for his support of rabbinical learning across the Mediterranean and the Near East. Also learned in Arabic, he was appointed as counsel to the vizier of the ruler in Granada. Because of his divinely inspired counsel, Ibn Daud relates, the ruler of Granada at the time, King Habus, greatly prospered. The idea of rabbinical counsel to kings recalls the way prophets of ancient Israel served as counselors to rulers. The idea, in both prophetic past and Ibn Daud's day, is that if rulers listen, it's a sign of good rule. If not, it's a signal their demise is imminent. The archetype here is the relation of Moses to Pharaoh, who didn't heed the prophet's voice and so met his end. Thus, the rabbinical sages who counsel worldly powers aren't doing it just for the Jews. They're imitating the prophets, whose counsel to worldly powers worked for the prosperity of society as a whole. The link makes sense, even in light of their concern for their Jewish communities, the minorities of their day. When rulers treat all groups fairly, including minorities, it's not only good rule, it also allows all to participate in society, making for greater prosperity. The saintly assembly, here rabbinical sages, reminds us that goodness is key to human flourishing. 
The sages were teachers, especially but not only in their Jewish communities. They were bearers of the wisdom of Torah that spoke of the redemption of Jews from enslavement to power, but that also worked for the goodness of all humanity. Ibn Daud illustrates the spread of Torah throughout the world, indicating the universality of providence with a story of four sages captured at sea and sold into slavery, providentially it turns out. They end up in different cities where their status as rabbinical masters attracted disciples, allowing for the spread of Torah. The point is that divine sovereignty will cover the whole earth. Thus, while Ibn Daud sees two histories, the history of those who lived by Torah, making them righteously oriented, and the history of the wicked who are oriented to something other than God, he still sees all humanity converging around the spread of goodness as epitomized by Torah. It is a sign that God's ways will prevail, wickedness perish globally. Like Ibn Khaldun, Ibn Daud affirms that worldly power won't have the last say over Jews or the nations. What will have the last say is the message of Torah and acts of kindness it inspires in the human soul. Torah, which teaches that goodness rather than power sustains society, discloses the true workings of history. That, Ibn Daud notes, is real consolation for the soul at times of trial. Ibn Khaldun also locates society's goodness in God's law, known in Islam as Sharia. He didn't mean theocracy, as the term can imply today. He saw Sharia as a divine restraint on the excesses of worldly power, not unlike Ibn Daud's view of rabbinical counsel to kings drawing on what by his day was a long tradition of scholarly reflection on the purpose of law in Islam, Ibn Khaldun boiled it down to a set of principles, embodying a justice without which any society would collapse. In that sense, Sharia isn't about religious affiliation so much as it is about values for human flourishing. Ibn Khaldun ties his thinking about what makes society prosper notably justice, to Islam's mission, which he identified with the prohibition of injustice that only results in the destruction and ruin of civilization and eradication of the human species. For this reason, he says, Sharia boils down to five necessities, the preservation of religion, life, mind, progeny, and property. He is not talking about the rights of individuals to determine their own destiny, but rather laying out a set of principles that make goodness rather than power the basis of society. By linking this set of principles to Sharia, Ibn Khaldun is not suggesting that they're a product of religious consensus. They represent God's law in a providential sense, since if such principles are not preserved, society will succumb to the ways of power. To appreciate Ibn Khaldun's thinking in this matter, let's consider each principle to be preserved, religion, life, mind, progeny, property, as a divine mandate. With a divine mandate to preserve religion, the powerful can't pretend to be divine and rule for their own glory. With a divine mandate to preserve life, the powerful can't exploit others as if slaves with no dignity. With a divine mandate to preserve the mind, especially from the harmful effects of intoxicants, 
the powerful won't be able to dupe people with manipulative messaging. With a divine mandate to preserve progeny, the powerful will always face new generations of youth to challenge their elitist tendencies. With a divine mandate to preserve property, the powerful won't be able to concoct wealth through financial devices that siphon off the prosperity of society. With such a legal vision, Ibn Khaldun is very clear that what holds society together and allows it to flourish is not power, but the preservation of goodness in the face of the ways of power.